What's up, Funkers? We are back. Been a couple weeks without a recording. And finally, back on the microphone. Been busy. Really busy this year. And I know people like to just say that, but it feels like one day I'm in Oklahoma, next day I'm in Dallas. Shout out JSX Airlines. Um, And uh, really excited about this one today, Nigel. I've got Nigel Gorbold who I met sort of randomly when he signed up for the Funk Futures golf tournament a couple of years ago, and I had right. no idea who he was. So we decided to get together, grab some lunch in his backyard in Boulder, and have built a pretty nice friendship since. Nigel's repping East Daily, and we'll get to all of that stuff. But before we do that, Nigel, you know what we do here on What the Funk. You've heard a few episodes. Who are you, man? Who is Nigel Corbold? Yeah, it's a pretty loaded question. That's, um, what I, that's how we do it. <laughs> you know, I'm a, I'm a father of four and okay. uh, two dogs. Um, live, in, live in Colorado, you know, enjoying, enjoying life, living with my family here in Colorado. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm a proud uh, oil and gas guy, right? Um, you know, it's a little, little uh, unique to be based in Boulder, Colorado and be an oil and gas guy, but... Um, also, shout out to JSX. Do a lot of traveling for work <laughs> down to Houston and, and Houston and Dallas. And and I'll say, you know, just my one little plug. I, I you know, I'm not sponsored by JSX, but if JSX could get a Denver to Houston leg, oh my god, then I wouldn't need to fly commercial ever, ever again. Ever. It's 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 a game changer. It's a game changer. So they need um, to sponsor this podcast. Too. You know, I've been talking about them on here a little bit, like. We've been plugging them. I'm finally flying on them for the first time next week. But the word's getting out there. That's great. The fact that they do Broomfield, you're, right? It's going to be you're, dope. You're going to be you're going to be ruined. You're going to be ruined. Uh, yeah. So for anybody who doesn't know, JSX flies kind of hop on, hop off, semi-private like charter flights. And uh, if you're if any of our listeners are in Dallas, like you have to use JSX to go to Houston. So anyway, plug over. So. All right. This is not a sponsored you? segment, but, but. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I've been in the oil and gas industry for about, uh, 14 years. So I went to, went to school out here at C Boulder, mechanical engineering. Sco buffs. And yeah, Sco buffs, prime time. And, you know, after that first job was actually, uh, working for a DOD company, uh, doing R and D on flight simulators and like training systems, like big big motion-based video games for Department of Defense. Mm. And uh, uh, a buddy of mine was working for Smith Bits at the time, so a bit manufacturer, and uh, asked me to come in and interview for a job. And that kind of triggered a kind of a whole career of of traveling. You know, I was lucky enough to kind of go around the world and you know, meet, meet a lot of incredible people. I would say that's the biggest thing that, you know, the biggest biggest benefit of working in the oil and gas industry is is the people that work in it the best um, and the people that you interact with is is second to that so you know, started out here in denver colorado um was a field engineer for smith bits so i was you know working the western rockies so you know traveling utah uh, western western slope of colorado into wyoming is north dakota so it was you know kind of pickup truck going into doing product development for for bits and then the downturn happened in 2009 mm. and was offered a job to go overseas with uh with smith bits who uh, was later acquired by slumberjay 
Mm, so okay. spent 12 years with Smith Smith International and Slumberger uh, on the international side. So I started in, started in Aberdeen, uh, did three years in West Africa, so did Angola, wow. and uh, a year in Romania, so Eastern Europe, and then back to Aberdeen, and then uh, back here to Denver. So I kind of did a big kind of world, world tour circuit, and then back here. And along the way, it's just you know, the projects, but also the people that you get to meet, just incredible. So, wow. I, I guess I didn't realize that, that you'd spent so much time internationally. Obviously, I know you were with, uh, with Schlumberger, a huge company, right? But that is, that's fascinating. And I want to lean into that a little bit. Like, what is it like being an American? You're from New York, right? Originally upstate? Yeah, upstate New York, just outside of Rochester. Right, so, right. Same yeah, kind of and, latitude and, uh, as, kind of, as me, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Got it, got out of the Northeast winters and came out here where, we, where like, you know, the weather's just great every season, right? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, a little bit of rain right now, a little bit of a cold winter. We don't need to encourage people to move here. We can encourage people to fly JSX. We don't need to encourage more people to move here, Nigel. So I'm going to have to overrule you there. But I want to talk um, <laughs> about the, the international stuff. So you said Aberdeen um, and then uh, West Africa for three years. Correct. Yeah. So we were based in uh, like? Luanda. What? That's amazing. What's that like? Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was great. It was great. Uh, so West Africa has a lot of the same geology that like Brazil has. So when those two continents split, so there's actually a lot of deep water exploration and a lot of deep water drilling, which means, you know, high tier, um, high technology, you know, like kind of leading technology, um, you know, deep water, offshore, you know, drill ships and drilling rigs. So the projects were exciting. Um, they were, uh, you know, very large, very large projects, but like technically uh, very, very tough uh, projects. And then also the people, you know, the people that you work with, you know, when you're in the expat community, you kind of very, it's a very close knit community. And there's people from all over the world. So it's not just, you know, Americans, not just Brits. Um, it's every, you know, every, every group from around the world is kind of, uh, you know, brought in and you kind of live together as well as work together. So you're living in these compounds. Um, and Angola is a beautiful country. It's like, you know, it has, has the, the history of civil war and kind of war torn. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of that country still has active minefields. So mm. people like kind of flocked into the city. So the city's really overcrowded, but the beaches are beautiful. Like we saw we went camping on the beach and like saw sea turtles hatching and it was like some crazy experiences that you'd never expect. Um, you know, just on a, on a random kind of weekend with a bunch of friends that we met, uh, you know, in the, in the expat compound. So the, the work was very hard. Um, the, you know, you'd wake up and you'd get in the car like four forty-five in the morning just to beat traffic. So it was 12 miles from, from like the residence to the office yeah. and that 12 miles could take three and a half hours. No. So you leave early. Yeah. I was, I was training for a half marathon and there was times when I would run home and I would beat like the car, like beat, beat the oh bus that would take everybody back, back to the compound. So you do like 12 mile run in what, two hours, two and a half hours. And the car would be like an hour behind you. So, That's so it's like, you have these, it's not all smooth sailing, right? It's uh, you're living in a third world country with a family 
Um, you still have to do grocery shopping stuff, schools, like all the normal family life and kid life is the same, right? Um, so it's not all uh, it's not all rosy. And you're also picking up everything you own and like moving it to to a different country. So th- there's a lot of transition, but um, you know, I think you kind of lose sight of all the all the hardship. And what you remember is like all the really fun times, right? And uh, and so you know you start really early in the morning. You probably won't get back home till about six p.m. Um, and it was you know we were working six or seven days a week just because the project were twenty four hours over there. Sure. So uh, so really really hard job. Um, you know really really uh, difficult to kind of navigate like that work life balance when it's like you're pretty much working. You know you're on call twenty four hours a day, but mm. When you have the time off, it's just exceptional, and 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 the kids love it as well. You know, the kids just you know they, they always remember that time in Africa is like the best time. Yeah, yeah, that's that's cool, and I think it it offers a good perspective into yeah, it's not just a vacation, right? You're actually there to work. Yes, you get to enjoy some of the really cool things like seeing sea turtles hatch, but you're on call twenty four seven and. You're working what 12, 13 hour days with maybe a couple of those hours or more um, in a vehicle, right? Just going from one place to the next for work. Um, did you go offshore? Were you taking like helicopters to go out to the rigs and stuff like that? Yeah, we so we had a couple of trips offshore, and uh, you know you have to you have to um, you have to do your helicopter survival training. And mm-hmm. that's, that's pretty interesting to do that, you know, at a training facility in Angola. Um, yeah, I remember there was this, there's kind of grizzly old North Sea, like Scottish guy doing the training. And he, uh, he had a very thick Aberdonian accent. Come on, do and, it. And, um, you know, he's training like, no, 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 no. I'm going to Scottish <laughs> white, so I, I can't, you okay. know, I, I'd be skewered for the rest of the day if I, if he heard me trying to imitate it. So, but yeah, you, you, you know, basically have to get training, you know, to go out, um, you know, on a helicopter going out, you know, out offshore, you know, I wasn't really on the operational team. It was more on the management, um, side for the business unit. So it wasn't really necessary for me to be out on the rigs. It was more of, um, just going on field visits and kind of, you know, QC with, with the clients. Hmm. Um, you know, it's just, it's such a, you know, it's a little bit of a pressure cooker because it's such a high tier, high expense, um, operation that uh, there's not a lot of room for mistakes, right? So you have to make sure that everything is, uh, you know, double and triple checked. And, and I would say that's the that's the hardest part of any operation down there is, is really logistics, like making sure things show up on time at the right place and the right piece of equipment or the right personnel. Uh, that, was, that was the hardest thing. And if you could be good at that, you could, you know, you do, do really well in, in those operations. So, so you were with Smith Bits slash Schlumberger for 12 years. Okay. And that, by my count, took you to what? Yeah. About 2021? Is that right? 2020. So, yeah, okay. right around the pandemic. So, the pandemic started uh, early 2020. Um, I left Schlumberger uh, in May and then had, uh, took about, you know, six or seven months off uh, to kind of, <laughs> refurb a home so we, we yeah. bought this old kind of uh a fixer-upper right like an old you know like 100 year old house that kind of needed a lot of love um and so kind of spent yeah six six months during the pandemic during that summer um working on the house and also spending time with the kids you know everybody was everybody was oh 
So, you know, we weren't yeah. traveling anywhere. Um, and, uh, you know, kind of making the most of that, that time kind of with everybody. So and then, you spent um, time refurbing, right? And, and chilling out in, in Boulder at this old home that you're fixing up. Yeah. And then what? So, and then I was like, well, it's probably time to start looking for a job, right? Um, you know, had, had my fun, kind of had, uh, had that relax that six months off. Um, and then really started looking into, you know, getting back into the oil and gas industry. And I wanted to get into more of a, you know, looking at, you know, I, I really enjoyed, you know, the kind of data and analytics side, you know, previously in my roles. And so I was looking for roles that where I could kind of leverage both, right. You know, experience in the oil and gas field. Um, but also looking at kind of data analytics and like where, where we could, you know, role that we could on a fit for optimization and, and, you know, how we could leverage data. Um, and that's where I found East Daily. So, uh, East Daily Analytics was, you know, a, it's a, you know, still a startup. So we're a small team. We're about 25 people. Uh, we're based down in Greenwood Village. So Tech Center down in Denver and, you know, focuses on data analytics for, uh, the midstream space. But, you know, really, really it's pipeline data all over North America. So it covers, you know, Canada and into Mexico as well. And I think that was eye-opening for me, right? To go from an upstream, very, very energy, you know, exploration and production side, so like EMP focused to understanding and really getting a full picture of the entire infrastructure picture in North America is like, it is, it's overwhelming how many, how many molecules move on pipes and, uh, and how critical that, that infrastructure piece is. You know, I, I kind of took it for granted before you kind of see yeah. that the midstream space, it really connect, it really connects the upstream and the downstream. And as soon as that connection is either constrained or broken, um, is, is a very large impact. So, so kind of getting that appreciation for, for that. And then, you know, the, the amount of data that we leverage on a, on a daily basis for all infrastructure is, uh, is, is pretty, pretty impressive. So this is something where people listen to this podcast that are both in the industry. I'd say that's large majority, but there are some folks, you know, in, in new England or other places in New York that to them, oil and gas as a whole is just sort of this, this thing. And they don't really differentiate as much between upstream, midstream and downstream. Those of us in the industry know, these are very specific niches, right? And, and the way I've sort of looked at it is upstream is extremely complex. It's, it's more boomer bust. Midstream is a little bit more simple, but it's very stable. Tell me about how maybe some of your assumptions were broken once you got into the midstream space after spending a dozen years on the upstream side. Yeah, no, it's a great question. It's, it, you know, and it's still learning every day, right? I think that's, that's the greatest thing about the oil and gas is like every day you can kind of learn a new totally. some segment of the oil and gas industry like there's you know some new technology or it's like you know how they you know do coring you know for for geological analysis and subsurface and seismic and like and all the way down to the refinery and all the crackers and 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 fractionation so every day is a learning day right and every day you kind of see this new little subsegment subsegment or this little sliver of the oil and gas industry and I would say that either the biggest thing for me is when you go from upstream to midstream, you're like, okay, well, you know, getting on a pipe or getting to market, you don't really consider it. 
you know, especially when you, if you're on the drilling at, at drilling and well construction side, you yeah. know, by the time you're done and, and you're, you're moving on to the next project, kind of who cares how it gets to market, right? Um, you're thinking about the next well and the next path. And for, for me, it's just kind of the really understanding how critical it is, you know, like, so nat gas, right? Nat, natural gas has to be constrained from the minute it comes from the wellhead to the burner tip, yep. right? So you could have a well in the Northeast, you know, in Pennsylvania, and that gas could be going almost all the way to the West Coast, mm. right? So, so the entire network, you know, if, if you, you, are, you know, you just Google, you know, like pipeline infrastructure, just to see a map of it. And it's, uh, it's all encompassing and, you know, NACAS especially is, it is fungible, right? So it, it moves around the entire, entire country and how it moves throughout the country is when you, when you actually kind of see it, when you kind of peer behind the curtain, um, it's amazing that it actually works. You know, it's amazing that it actually works reliably. Yeah. And so much so that the normal user is just like, yeah, you just, you know, turn on your stove or your furnace. Um, and, but all the little pieces that kind of add up to get it from that wellhead to the burner chip is, uh, it's, it's really impressive, really impressive when you see it. Yeah. That's like, that's definitely something. And I'm sure where you grew up in, in, uh, upstate New York, where I grew up in central New Hampshire, you just don't think about, right? Because you don't see these wells, you don't see the pipelines. It just shows up. Right. And then you get involved in the space and yeah. you're like, oh man, there's a lot that goes into this. How is there not more gas leaks, right? How is there not more like, yeah. uh, like environmental issues? And of course there are some, but the large percentage, um, you know, oil and gas is transported very safely. And that's definitely something that we have better in this country than anywhere else in the world. Um, on East Daily, so you guys really first hit my radar about three years ago. I was at W Energy Software and I was doing work with Pembina Pipeline up in Canada um, and, and doing like significant yeah. business for them, was doing some account planning for 2021. And my boss at the time said, hey, why don't you go download some uh, analysis on the company? And I did some Googling and I came across East Daily. Um, and there was like a 34-page kind of research and analysis piece on Pembina Pipeline. And it was incredible. Like the amount of detail, the the broken down spend between this is where they're going to invest their money in the future. These are company priorities. I don't know where East Daily got all this information, but it was something like 500 bucks. And I was like, oh my God, like the amount of material and information that was there was robust and it was impressive and it would be awesome for both an investor yeah. and of course a salesperson that was looking to sell into that company just because of all the information that you guys had aggregated. And I was like, wow, this company knows their shit. And then sort of disappeared, at least from my <laughs> radar, until you guys came in and a foursome registers all of a sudden for my golf thing. And I'm like, oh yeah, I know yep. East Daily. And and realized there's so much yep. more than just the research and analysis. And take me a little bit to the evolution of where East Daily has gone. Because clearly you guys are solid at research, right? You understand where to get the data. And now you're helping kind of visualize that data, which is valuable both for midstream companies as well as upstream companies. So I'm curious, where has the company kind of come from and where is it going? That That's a, that's a great point. You touched on you, your journey for East Daily is not uncommon, 
right? Yeah. Most people are like, yeah, I've heard of you guys, right? But I don't really know what you do. Right. Um, you know, I, I, if, I, if I put it very simply, we, we pull in every scrap of publicly available data on pipelines and we make sense of it. Got right? it. We, we aggregate it, organize it by an asset. And then my asset could be like a gathering processing um, system in the Permian. It could be a long haul pipe in the Northeast. It could be a you know crude terminal in the Gulf Coast. Um, so every asset, there's actually a, a, a significant amount of information that's publicly available, um, but it's messy. It's messy and it's um, sometimes, you know, they, we have spelling mistakes. Sometimes you have you know, these old archaic federally, you know, supported databases, like, you know, mm-hmm. FERC data sets are not friendly to work, work within. So that's the, you know, that's yeah. the, every, every pipe that moves across a state line is, has a, it's basically interstate commerce, right? So it is, uh, it's federally regulated and it's federally reported. And then you have all your state data. So you have Texas railroad, you have Colorado, um, North Dakota. So at all your state data and federally, this shed load of data out there. But organizing it and then having it repeatedly updated as new data comes in is really hard. So we have a dedicated data team that are like they're magicians when, you know, pulling all the data in and like really QCing it and making sense of it. Um, so, so East Daily was born from leveraging that data to look at a particular asset and identify operational risk for the investors. So let's say a pipeline company has multiple different assets and different basins and you have contracts up on pipes. So you have contracts that whether you flow molecules or not, you have to pay. And then when those contracts roll off, if there's no actual volume flowing, then that's a risk to the investors that were signing up or, you know, investing in a pipe or, or a company. So that's really where East Daily started was building up, you know, one model, one company and identifying, okay, what's actually happening with this company? So what molecules are they flowing? What contracts do they have? Um, you know, what's their CapEx spend? What are the margins? And you can you can paint a very uh, pretty complete picture with a lot of public available data. And then you build sophisticated tools that kind of model and bridge the gap between two two known data sets. You kind of bridge the gap, like the white space in between. You know, so if there's, you know, a, a simple examples of, pipeline company owns four different assets and three of them are, you know, federally regulated and they have, you know, public data out there. Well, the last one you can, you can kind of back into the, the missing piece. And we've just done that at scale and repeatedly on, on a, on a continually updated basis. So somebody needs to get access, um, or, you know, get up to speed on an asset or even a basin or really understand in like, you know, how to, how to move gas out of the basin to a market. Um, I haven't seen anybody else out in the mark, out, out in the space, do it as completely as we have, okay. you know, looking at it from how, how molecules move, but also the financials of a company that can support like their growth, their CapEx spend, their maintenance, maintenance expenses. So we, you know, we provide the financial models, to the investors, but it's also, you know, private equity companies that want to get up to speed on a particular asset or investment banks that have, uh, maybe there's debt. That's uh, um, they're you know kind of shopping around debt for a for a particular asset, uh, but then even midstream companies and and producers as well, EPs. Uh, what we find is that a lot of people are like, I don't really know what you guys do. And as soon as we show them, they're like, We tried to do that, or we built them <laughs> on, and we built it last year, and we really don't want to update it again. Like right. it's like this is great. We could just 
subscribe to you guys and you provide us the model and, and you do all the heavy lift of aggregating the data together. So I think that's where that's the journey of people were like, yeah, I've seen your stuff, kind of seen some of your posts or some of your free content or, you know, we've gotten a report, but I don't really actually know what you guys do. And, uh, and to be fair, we haven't been very good historically about telling people well, what we do. For we've sure. been really focused on like data, like building the company, but not, you know, marketing wasn't really a big focus for us really until probably about a year ago, a year and a half ago. And really kind of going out to market and say, hey, I think we can help people. Yeah, that that's really helpful for me. And I've, I've heard you now explain it a few times and I've spent enough time with you guys and we've done some recruiting for you and help place people that it, it does make sense to me now. But if I were to put you guys in a bucket, like, so you're sort of like what Drilling Info or, you know, Inveris or IHS or, or Well Database, what they do, but for, for midstream pipelines and, and gathering, right? You're going in, you're scraping all the public yeah. data sets, you're cleansing it you're making sense of it. And then you're providing this valuable information to operators, transporters, midstream companies. And then of course the capital markets, right? Because investors want this information as well. They want to get any advantage that they possibly can um, and, and get ahead of Correct. where other potential investors would be. But what really put East Daily on the, the larger scale radar, I think happened about a year ago, where you guys effectively predicted based, I think, on the data that you had, that natural gas prices were going to drop. A year ago right now, I think natural gas was like in the sixes per MCF range, and people were incredibly bullish on it. And you guys said, not so fast, my friend. Potentially, this could be an issue, that there's, there's flow issues. There's data that's telling us that natural gas prices is going to go down. And people were like, shut the fuck up. And you're like, well, let's see what let's see what happens. So yeah. tell me, how, how did East Daily do it? You guys kind of predicted a little bit of a, a price decrease in natural gas, and then all of a sudden, people were like, "Wait a second, who are these guys?" Yeah, no, that's, that's a really good point. And it's, uh, I would say, going back to your analogy of like who who we are, like the different kind of companies you mentioned. I would say you add all those, and then add a Bloomberg terminal for all the financial. Okay. That's who we have, right? Nice. That's who we are. Um, and, and the nat gas call, yeah, about 14 months ago. So over a year ago, we set, we started calling out that we were going to be oversupplied nat gas. And again, like it has to be constrained. It has to be in a pipeline. So we are, you know, we are not like a top down, you know, global fundamentals company. We're a bottoms up supply, like piece by piece, looking at every little individual pipeline, but we roll it up to like a macro view and when we did that a year ago, we said, hold, hold the phone, like the IP rates that we're seeing in the gas basin. So you, so you have a interesting dynamic happening in the U S now that is different from the last 20 years. So you have the Permian basin that has, is a, is a, a gas basin, right? It has mm. associated gas. That's a byproduct really for oil. Sure. So it's driven off of the WTI price. So yet you, you have this associated gas that's been steadily growing. And then you have gas prices recovering. So, so Permian associated gas doesn't respond to gas price that we pay here at the That's price, right. right? That's right. Um, so, so you have a you have a rig add with oil price, but then you also have additional gas. There's gas basins like the Haynesville into the Midcon parts of the Eagleford and the Northeast. You know the biggest one, and they are very susceptible to 
to gas prices or Henry Hub or NYMEX prices. Yep. So what we started seeing is that these gas basins were ramping up with the higher commodity pricing. And we said, you know, for every rig with the new well that's coming online, and again, like very granular, like like the details matter. And we were kind of building it up. And then we can build it up over time. And we started saying, okay, no, not this year. This year we are undersupplied natural gas. But into next year, into 23, we see that we're building this kind of momentum of natural gas. And you, it's, you know, gas is difficult to do something with it other than put it into storage. Totally. So we have this huge underground storage uh, capacity here. So, you know, like we, we produce about 100 BCF a day of nat gas, and we can store about 4.1 to 4.4 TCF. So that's another 1,000 BCF. And that, that underground storage is like the damper of supply and demand because we use a lot of nat gas in the winter when it's cold. Sure. But our production is kind of flat and it kind of, you know, see you have production going up and down, then you have demand going up and down. And that storage is kind of the balance of it takes off additional supply and it provides it when the demand goes up. And we just saw, saw this kind of dynamic happening and kind of seeing it like a, a little bit of a, you know, car crash kind of starting to happen, you know, further down, you know, into the distance, right? And we started, you know, commenting on it, you know, kind of making this call. And I don't, I would, I would say your, your way of pointing it was, uh, you know, it, it was very apt, right? It was like, it wasn't received very well. It was a lot of skepticism. Yeah. Who you are know, you? We, we presented Tell me to this. a number. Of, <laughs> yeah. We presented like three different NACAS training conferences and we presented in Houston. So, uh, you know, I tell this story quite a bit because it's very, it's, it's very indicative of like what happened. So in October time, we were in Houston, presented at this conference, laid out, like, we we're like, Hey, we, we believe we're going to be oversupply gas. And, and, uh, you know, we're basically building it with like this moment, like the train is leaving the station. And at the time I want to say Henry hub was like seven fifty eight dollars which for anybody who's, you know, doesn't follow Henry hub, it's probably three times the price of what it normally was. Yeah. Like $3, 350 was kind of the normal rate and it spiked up to like $10, $12. So it was like eight or nine bucks. Very good time for nat gas producers. And that was our entire audience. Our entire audience was DMPs. And our analysts at the time got up and said, you know, just laid out, you know, just like what we're saying. And the, and the, uh, the panel moderator came up to him afterwards um, for a Q&A session and what somebody got the mic and they said, hey, and he was like, you haven't talked about pricing. You've just said we're oversupplied, right? Yeah. So for me as an EP, it's like pricing matters. So you haven't called for a price and, and keep in mind it was $8 and he was like, well, probably going to be below $3 and maybe down to like two. There was like this like gasp in the oh, oh, no. And we're basically saying like, hey, your, your pricing is going to erode in like four months. And, uh, and then the moderator came back out, up afterwards, like, Hey, could you go up and apologize? Because <laughs> like, we got some really upset people. You're basically talking like their pricing is going to go away, like melt away. And, uh, so yeah, there was a lot of skeptics. There was, um, a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of people didn't believe, but you know, we, we don't have a skin in it. We're not a hedging company. We're not a bank. Right. Um, and you know, we just said, Hey, we're just, we're, we're just, just looking at the data, like just the facts. And, uh, and then November, December comes and then into January. So I think I've just done my ninth trip to Houston. Um, 
and we've been uh, very busy with a lot of people calling us up and be like, "Hey, we, we saw your we saw your presentation, or we've seen stuff you put out, and um, and what else do you guys do over there?" I'm like, "We've heard of these daily, heard of daily, these daily. We've seen one of your reports, but what do you what do you guys do over there?" So it's been very busy, um, and we're kind of looking at like how this plays out. Because it's a it's an oversupply now, but we have a very large stack of projects that are coming to the Gulf Coast for LNG. So that's right. liquefied natural gas. So, you know, we we could very quickly become a very integral part of the world market. So like now our WTI, uh, like our crude is is connected to a international market. Um, gas not so much, but right. now it is, you know, there, there's a horizon, there's kind of a, a runway for nat gas to be tied to an international market as well. Um, and that's, that would, that would be a shift, you know, this big shift for um, domestic, and it's a, it's a huge opportunity for, for U.S. Uh, nat gas producers. So yeah, that's, absolutely. That's the data. I would say, what do we do? We, we like, we like find the signal from all the noise of all the data out there. We say, I think this is going to be oversupplied or undersupplied. And for gas, we are very directionally accurate kind of historically. Well, where, where is it going now? I mean, you guys made the right call 14 months ago and you sort of beat that drum. Here we are mid 2023. Um, NAT gas prices have not recovered from where they were last year. What are we looking at now for the next 12 months? Or do you need to yes, subscribe? To, so do we need to subscribe great, to East Daily to get that information? <laughs> yeah, that's going to be behind the paywall. <laughs> um, you know, I think we, we, we have, um, you know, we have a view that we're, we're still oversupplied for the remainder of this year. You know, the, okay. if you look at the kind of the forward strip, like how gas is trading towards the end of the year, we still think we're oversupplied. So I think we're still in it for a pretty tough next 12 to 14 months. Yeah. Um, into 24 and into 25, we're going to start to see those, you know, when those projects come online, um, you know, we, we kind of track, we track updates every month. So we have a revised kind of forecast every month. So it does change. Yeah. Um, we're starting to see, uh, you know, producers react to that lower pricing, which we, you know, haven't seen in January and February and then in, even in March. But now we're starting to see, you know, producers guide to uh, lower activity, um, lower, lower frack crews. Um, so I think that there's a, you know, the market is, is adjusting, but there's always a delay, right? You have, you have rig plans, you have kind of frack crew plans. And so there's, um, you know, it's like, there's always a swing. There's always a, a pendulum effect, right, of supply and demand. And it isn't like a direct one for one as far as, oh, we were oversupplied, then you shut in all your wells and you can't really do that. So um, I think we're in for a, a hard a hard 12 months on gas pricing. Um, now, that said, it could be a really hot summer. That could take off a lot of that not gas, you know, oversupply. Um, mm. Because, you know, we, we use net gas for, for running power jet and for running yeah. air conditioners. So there, there's a lot of toggles. There's a lot of levers. I think that the value of, if I could like distill down the value of what East Daily does is it looks at all the supply demand, not for a producer and a demand, like the two bookends of like what are producers are doing and what are power gen doing, but it looks like the different lenses, the midstream, like the connectivity. Yeah. So keeping our finger on the pulse of like what's actually happening between the two. And I would see that what helps us identify 
dynamics that the market misses. I, th I think that's, if I really distill down the value is like, that that's it. It's like, we're, we're using midstream lens to say, okay, this is what's happening upstream and this is what's happening downstream. And cool. this is what, what is the oversupplied or undersupplied. And we have a very good directional understanding of that balance. So like our horizon and how our forecasts meet with constraint or oversupply, it's just been, uh, yeah, directionally correct uh, more often than not. So, uh, so yeah, next 12, 12 to 14 months still going to be tough. Could be, you know, it's the, one of the levers that you can pull is, is a really cold winter next winter, right? Um, so that's the things we're kind of monitoring month to month. And, all, you know, every, every month when we put out a new forecast, we're kind of looking, okay, here, here's the lens, of, you know, where we think NACAS is going to go. Yeah. And, um, and then what the outer years, I don't think the, uh, the reality has set in for how many projects are in place just from an infrastructure side and how to get that much net gas to the Gulf Coast if we're going to ship it overseas. Sure. I see how you could really geek out on this because even just listening to you, it like plays to my mathematical nerdy brain. And I've been an analytics, but on the upstream side for the past 10 plus years. And, and I love it. Like I like the the fact that oil and gas companies are prim primarily siloed in terms of how they operate. But then when you bring all that data together, you're combining um, profitability with production versus forecast versus downtime versus let me show you the invoices. Like that kind of stuff makes me nerd out because just taking that holistic picture that sometimes even oil and gas companies don't do or don't do well um, is is something where I'm like, okay, you pull this lever here, this is how it changes here. If prices go here, this drops here, right? So there's there's a lot of different ways yeah. to sort of look at and analyze the data, and I think you guys are doing a fantastic job within the, uh, the midstream space. I want to pivot a little bit here to um, food because you and I both love food, and specifically, we both love pizza. So I want to talk a little bit, Mr. Nigel, about what are your favorite pizza places in Colorado? Yeah, you know, pizza. Um, I would say during during the pandemic and the lockdown, I kind of went deep deep down the pizza rabbit hole, right? <laughs> uh, you know, I so said it was like, you know, my wife won't let me talk about pizza dough. At like, at, pizza dough yeah, <laughs> not allowed to talk about pizza dough at like dinner parties. Um, but, uh, you know, got one of those uni, uh, pizza ovens at home. Oh, you so do? Like, I've yeah. Been and then, about that. um, like the, like the wood fired ones, like being, being, being a, you know, building a big one would be awesome. But I like that we've taken it camping with us, right? It's just, you know, fire it up and run it in 20 minutes. But, um, but yeah, it's something we share or like, we both love pizza, right? It's like oh, yeah. coming from the Northeast, um, kind of a staple and, uh, and it was, um, yeah, there's some good, there's some really great pizza places around here, right? That, that we're lucky enough to kind of have in around here. I think I told you oh, about wow. the place up in Vanderland, right? Did I tell you about uh, that cross, place? Crosscut? Crosscut, yeah. That's one of your favorites. That, yeah, I, I would say I, my house, I make the second best pizza in Boulder County. The first really? best place. It, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and first place is Crosscut. They those, and they're not sponsoring the segment either. But they they make exceptional pizza. I need to um, I need to go up there. I, I so I've followed them on Instagram for the last like two and a half years. I had to unfollow them because my mouth was watering too much, and I don't live close enough to Netherlands to be able to get there. 
Um, yeah. But I have some spots in Denver that I like personally. I, I mentioned Famous Jays to you, which yes. is outstanding. It's the same guys that have Rosenberg's bagels, and they just roll the dough down uh, when Rosenberg's closes and, and make pizza yes. with it. That's good. I like Marco's. Um, 22nd Larimer over there, right across from Mexico City, or right next door to Mexico City. It's so good. Neapolitan style. But Lafayette has like... Yeah, what's your, which, what's your favorite style? That's like, a, it's pretty pretty inflammatory. That's a loaded question, but... <sighs> Traditional New York style, I think, is my favorite. I'd put that number one. And then probably Neapolitan would go next with like the classic you know, um, mozzarella chunks, right. Very, very saucy. Yeah. I love the, love a, a good, like salty and savory tomato sauce, right. On the, on the yeah. pizza. And then, you know, this the Chicago style doesn't do anything for me, but of course, like the buttery Detroit style pizza is, is pretty badass. So. Yeah, and probably the in that order, style, you know? like in the pan. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. yeah. That's uh no, it, it, I think it's uh, there's a whole journey that you can do in pizza, right? <laughs> and have you uh, have you watched like Netflix net, that Netflix uh, show Chef's Table, I where they it. go through um, uh, absolutely worth it? Just the cinematography of like it's a document, it's a food documentary that even if you're full at the end of it, you're like, let's order up some pizza. It is incredible, <laughs> and uh, goes through what they say is the best pizza place in uh, in the states. And it's um, it's uh, a place down in Phoenix, so really? it's like, um, yeah. So so it, and it kind of goes through the whole history of the guy who's kind of started. It's really good. So again, um, definitely worth checking out. It's Chef's Table on on Netflix, and it's the first the first episode, and it's just like it is. It's a banger as far as a uh, as a as a uh, documentary. We're coming up on lunchtime, and I'm so hungry right now. I think I know what I'm having for lunch. But to to add on to that, yeah. right? I I was in I was in San Francisco about a year and a half ago, and um, was just walking around. I'm like, oh, where should I where should I go? Kind of want some pizza, of course. And I went to this place called Tony's uh, in North Beach and sat down. And you know, everybody says we have award winning pizza. This won some sort of award at blah blah blah, and I got a Neapolitan pizza there. I'm like, damn, this that was really good. And they're like, yeah, I just won some award. I'm like, yeah, yeah. everybody says that. No big deal. I was home uh, shortly after that. And just like this Instagram thing came up and it's like, you, you know, here are the top 100 pizza places in the United States. And that was number one on this particular list. I'm like, yeah, oh, yeah. okay. All right. And that, just, that's, that validates you, like, it. Tripped and fell into that place for lunch. Right. So you're just like, you're just like, I'm like, Landed there by mistake, and you're like, oh, "That's pretty good. Pretty good. Uh, uh, pretty good mistake to show up there." Yeah. Well, next time I go to San Francisco, I know where I'm going. And also on that list was uh, number fourteen, a place in Portland where I went for a bachelor party about five, six years ago. Um, that was really, really good. And I'm like, "Yeah, this is okay. This is validating that I know pizza because these are like all my top places." Also, and there weren't a lot of Colorado places on there to be honest. There's one in Colorado Springs that I want to hit up. Um, but that was like number 15 or something like that. But I don't know. I think the pizza out here is just yeah. okay. It's my take. It's okay. I think it's getting better though. I think there's some really good kind of up and coming places. Right. Um, and it's, uh, you know, I think there's the Greenwich that's down in Denver also has a really good pizza. So I think, I think we're kind of getting there, but, uh, 
I would say in general, and I'm probably going to get skewered by all my kind of Dem- or Colorado natives and you know, Denver buddies, but I don't think Denver has the best food scene collectively totally. compared totally. to like Houston. Like I'm going to Houston all the time. <laughs> the place has incredible restaurants at like every different price point um, from every different corner of the world. Um, Absolutely. And everybody roll their eyes when I say this, but I think Houston has some of the best food scene from just sheer variety and uh, value. Like, you know, like you can get an awesome like breakfast burrito for like five or six bucks and you can, or you can go for like high tier steak dinners. Um, and it's just, uh, it, it, they're just the, the entire, you know, the entire spectrum of, of restaurants that they have is, is, uh, is the best that I've seen. Um, and yeah, it's not very, Agreed. it's not very, Agreed. uh, yeah, a lot of the guys that I travel with for work were just like kind of roll their eyes when I say, "No, man, we're going to have some great meals." And then we, we, after we get back from Houston, they're like, "You're right." I'm like, I'm wait, wait a second. So yeah, I mean, Houston, Houston, not not a huge fan of the traffic. You know, the the weather most of the year, whatever, take it or leave it. The food, though, I will not take any Houston food slander. It's the best food city that I've been to, and I've spent time in in New York and um, San Francisco and others. Okay, we got to wrap up here, Nigel. Where can people yep. find you? Where can they find your company? Yeah, so you can find, you know, go to our website. So that's eastdaily.com. Uh, they can find me on LinkedIn. Um, and yeah, we put up a lot of good free content through our website as well. That's all searchable. Great. So, you know, through our website, we're on, we're on LinkedIn, we're on Twitter. Um, look us up. And we put on a lot of really good kind of commodity, uh, commodity supply demand, a lot of free content as well. So, we have a daily note that goes out. It's not daily. It's Tuesday to Friday, but it goes out Tuesday <laughs> to Friday. And then we have a Nat Gas, a Nat Gas Weekly that does come out every week. And we're just about to roll out a crude one as well uh, in the next couple of weeks. So um, we're just you know talking about more more interesting dynamics that we see in see in the basins and uh, especially on the commodity side. Um, so definitely go and check that out because we we put out a ton of really good stuff out there. Yeah, it's great. It's great stuff. Um, Nigel, the Nige, appreciate you coming on, my man, representing Boulder County with me. East Daily doing some big things. I'm a fan of the newsletter. I read it every day or, you know, every day that it comes out. And uh, appreciate you, brother. We'll uh, keep keep banging the drum and telling people what's going to happen, not uh, playing into the hype. So thanks, brother. Absolutely. And thanks for uh, thanks for having us on. This is uh, this is great. The podcast is such a such a great, great uh, kind of vehicle for this and, and you do such a great job so this is uh Excellent. this is really fun to be here appreciate it man cool